If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. 1 John, immediately following 2 Peter, before Jude and Revelation. We're continuing in our expositional series through this book today. The verses I will be concentrating on will be in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Kids, the title of the sermon is The Confidence of God's People. And your key words this morning are encourage, forgiven, and overcome. First John chapter 2. Now, as we've seen, the Apostle John has been dishing out some rather strong words up to this point as he warns the flock about false teachers, about false professors, and the way they were trying to deceive the faithful. He has said such things such as, in chapter 1, verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. Verse, chapter 1, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 4, He has said, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And then in verse 9, as we looked at last week, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So you see, John's not culling it here. He's, he's giving some very strong warnings uh, to the church. John is an apostle of Jesus Christ, and so he has no problem when it comes to refuting false teachers and false beliefs. That's what they did. He was bold and a courageous defender of the faith. But we have to keep in mind that he was also a pastor. And as a pastor, he cared deeply about the sheep of God. And so after saying these hard things, he naturally would be wondering, how are the real believers in Christ responding to what I'm saying? After all, remember that John's overall purpose in writing was not to discourage the true child of God, but to provide assurance. As he said later on in the book in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so that's John's purpose, is to bring assurance uh, to the child of God. And so what we have here, starting in uh, verse 12 and going through verse 14, John kind of takes a break in the flow of his teaching to do three things for the child of God. He wants to bring comfort to them. He desires to comfort them. He desires to encourage them the child of God. And he also wants to challenge them to grow in the Christian life. And so those are the things that John is attempting to do this morning. So follow along as I read verses 12 through 14 of 1 John chapter 2. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. 
So John here is warning his readers at whatever stage in the Christian life they are at to, cons- uh, to consider what God has done in their lives. He wants them to know that they have authentic faith. John Calvin, in his commentary on this book, put it this way, Having faithfully spoken of good works up to this point, lest he should seem to give them more importance than he ought to have done, he carefully calls us back to contemplate the grace of Christ. In some ways, this is a difficult passage to interpret. Commentators are widely divided over such things like, why does John repeat the appeals that he makes to the groups he's are here he is addressing? Uh, the first appeal he's, we see here in, chapter, in verse 12, in the first part of verse 13, he says, I am writing in the, per, in the present tense. I'm, I am currently writing to you these things. But then in the second appeal, he changes to what, what the Greek calls the aorist tense, which is really more of a summary of what he's doing. He's saying, I, um, I write or I have written. Now, I'm not going to comment too much on, on this other than to say what I believe John was doing here is what any effective teacher will do is to exercise a, a teaching principle called repetition to prove the point. And so I believe that's what he's doing, so I'm not going to comment too much on that because you, most, like I said, most commentators are kind of divided over what's going on there, why he changes uh, his tenses there. But commentators are also divided over another thing here that, about the groups that John is addressing. Uh, is it two groups or is it three? You know, it appears from first glance as we look at this that he's talking to three different groups of people. He, he addresses them as little children or children, fathers and young men. Uh, but keep in mind, though, that whatever it, what it, whether it is two or three groups or whatever John is doing here, he's not talking about actual physical age. He's not talking about a little child physically, or, or a young man, or an older man, or a young, older woman. He's speaking, he's using um, this language uh, to describe a spirit, he's using a physical language to describe spiritual status. Uh, in other words, a child, as he's addressing here, would be really classified as a new believer in the faith. And a father would be someone who is a spiritually, spiritually wise, and a young man would be someone who would be between the two. And so, uh, the reason that I say that they're divided over whether there's two or three groups here is uh, the Greek word that's translated little children there in verse 12 is the Greek word technion, which means a little child, but it also means in the New Testament it can be used of a term of kindly address by teachers to their disciples. And John actually uses this same Greek word earlier in chapter 2 in verse 1 when he says, My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And so he's using that in a general sense to talk about all believers because he wants all believers to not sin. And then the, the Greek word that he uses in verse 13, the second appeal when he talks to the children, is a different Greek word. It's the Greek word paideon, which is a, a, translated a young child or a little boy or girl. And so... Whether, it's, whether he's talking to, in general, to use these words for children, in general, to talk about all the believers, and then he divides it into two groups as fathers and young men, or whether he's actually using uh, uh, this to actually talk about a little child in the faith, and then a young uh, father, and then a young man, I'm not going to try to debate that today. I'm going to take the position that he's actually talking to three different groups of people a babe in Christ, um, and then a, a father in the, in, the, in the faith, and then a young man. And so that's the, um, that's the way I'm going to take it today. 
And that, but just keep in mind here that the things that John is talking about to these different groups of people apply to all of us at every stage in life. And so that's the main point I want us to get out of here is what is John actually telling these people to do? What is he encouraging them with? That's what I want to focus my time on. And so that's John's goal is to bring encouragement to all Christians. And so first we're going to look at John's admonition to the babe in Christ. We see that in um, verse 12 and 13. Uh, and what John is telling them here is that they are forgiven for Christ's sake and that they thus know the Father. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And I write to you, children, because you know the Father. See, this is the foundation of the Christian life, is it not? This is the foundation of everything that we do. This is where we enter into the Christian life with understanding that our sins are forgiven and that we know the Father. And the first thing I think John is showing us here is the importance of that forgiveness. He says, because your sins are forgiven, I'm writing you this, I'm bringing this encouragement to you because your sins are forgiven. The word forgiven is in the perfect tense in the Greek which indicates action that took place in the past with lasting effects in the present and into the future. Uh, David says it in Psalm 32, verses 1 through 2, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Truly, we are blessed to have our sins forgiven. We are blessed. Think of it this way. Forgiveness is not something that is in us, is in you or me. The Christian is not someone who is seeking forgiveness or who is hoping to be forgiven. The Christian is not a person who is uncertain about our forgiveness or who prays for it or tries to merit it. No, Christians are people who know that they are forgiven. We know that we are forgiven. God alone is the one who grants forgiveness. He does this in justification when He pardons us of our sins and declares us righteous in His sight. Uh, that is, it's not for anything that we have done or anything in us, but it's all for the sake of the righteous Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what John, John is pointing to next in this passage. He says, I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. There's the, there's the foundation of our forgiveness. That's where our forgiveness is rooted in, the, the name of Christ Jesus a familiar verse that we read around Christmas time a lot of times, but it's, it's, we need to read this a lot. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. The, the prophet says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned away everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And so we know that the prophet there is talking about the Lord Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So you see, there's nothing in there about us. It's in Him. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ where we find our forgiveness grounded. When John tells the little children in the faith that their sins are forgiven for his name's sake, he means that their sins are forgiven on account of the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross alone. Our sins are not forgiven because of anything that we do or can do. 
We cannot do penance to work off our debt of sin. Jesus paid the debt in full. We cannot add good works to atone for our sins because Jesus atoned for them fully through His blood on the cross. But maybe you're out there thinking, as I have found myself thinking some in the past, that you just don't know how all the terrible things that I have done. Doesn't a really bad sinner have to do something to qualify for God's forgiveness? Do we find ourselves thinking that sometimes? There's something I have to do to merit this. But we learn from the Apostle Paul, who towards the end of his life writes to Timothy, he says, I am the chief of sinners. In Paul's progression, we see him starting off as the least of the apostles, which was just a, a group of twelve. He was the least of them. Then as he goes a few more years, he calls himself the least of all the saints. And so he broadens it out to include all of the, the children of God. He's the least of them. But then at the end of his life, he says, No, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of the worst. And that's Paul's perspective as he's going through life because he realizes that it's nothing in him that can merit that forgiveness. It's got to be merited through the blood of Jesus Christ. He is the one who merited our forgiveness. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8 that I just read a while ago, he says, In him... We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. That's shouting ground. Forgiveness of sin is for His name's sake and through Him and Him alone, not for anything that you can do or I can do or could ever anyone can do. Not your parents. Your parents can't do it. Your preacher can't do it. Nobody can do it. It's only through Him. All you can do is receive it by faith. But notice, too, that forgiveness of sins is something that the youngest child in the faith, the youngest child of God, can and should experience. It is foundational to our Christian walk that you can know that your sins are forgiven. Not because of anything in you, but solely because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. That is the foundation of our forgiveness. But he also goes on to say, the result of this forgiveness, what does it do? Verse 13b, still speaking to the little children, he says, because you know the Father. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, writes about this idea of knowing God as Father. He says, you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy Father. You want to judge how well a person understands, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. You understand what he's saying? It's the idea that we, that the creator of the universe, that created everything that we see and even things we cannot see, the sovereign, powerful king of the earth and the universe is our father, our heavenly father. And unless we contemplate that aright, we do not know Christianity aright. Our worship will not be right. And so from the earliest stages of our Christian life, and even further on, 
we should know God as our Father. He loves us and cares for us more than any earthly father ever could. As John will go on to say later in chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. He was marveling over this fact. I can't believe that God would call, that I can call God Father. What kind of love is that that He has given to us, that we can be His child? This week I made a little sign to put on my door because I wanted to spend some time in the study because it's just rather busy around here during the week with the school and activities of the church and my office is over there in the office building. And so I put a little sign there that says, Please do not disturb, I am in the study. And I put it on the door. And so I think it was about Wednesday. It was around 3 o'clock, 3.15, school had let out. And I was sitting in the chair. If you've ever been in my office, you know I have a chair right there by the door. And I was sitting in the chair just reading a book. I I was done studying for the day, but I hadn't took the sign down. And I heard my daughter, Rebecca, coming down the hall. Uh, I believe it was Caitlin with her, and you can tell when them two are together, they're coming. And so I was prepared for her to come busting in the door. And so she paused for a minute and read the sign and said, I heard her, I could hear her saying, please do not disturb, I am in the study. And then I heard her say to, say to Caitlin, I'm, her, I'm his daughter. Boom! <laughs> and went right on in the door. And so you see, what, why did she do that? Because I'm her father. And we have that relationship. And she knows that she has unconditional access to me. And that's, that's the way it is with God. He is our Father. And we have unconditional access to Him. He is still a holy God. And we must, we must approach Him with fear and trembling through Jesus Christ. But... We can go to Him like that. We have that access that no one else does. He's our Holy Father. And knowing that God has forgiven all your sins and that He is your Father, that's foundational to your life. Never forget that precious truth. If you don't know anything else, if that's as far as you get, that's a lot to know that we are forgiven Our sins are forgiven and we can call God our Father. That's amazing. Next, let's look at John's admonition to the fathers of the faith. We see that in verse 13 and 14. I am writing to you fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. Christians know the eternal word, Christ Jesus, God incarnate, who was from the beginning. And so here we see the goal of the Christian life is to be spiritual fathers who know Him who is from the beginning. But why does John use this term? What is he saying here about what does it mean to be Him who is from the beginning? Why is this a distinctive of those who are spiritually mature in the faith? Well, I believe the phrase here is focusing on the eternality of God And spiritual maturity involves developing an eternal perspective on life. It also prepares us for the next section, which we will look at next week, where John is saying, For the world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever, abides forever. That eternal perspective. So you see, the older you get, the more you realize how short and uncertain this life really is. 
As you grow older, you see more clearly that all of the things that people strive to attain, riches, recognition, pleasure, adventure, or whatever, fade away in the face of death and eternity. The earlier in your Christian life that you can learn that the Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal one who was with the Father in the beginning and that you will quickly step out of time and into eternity upon death, the more you will grow spiritually. The eternal perspective will help you to be enamored to not be enamored by the world and the things in this world. Paul in Philippians chapter 3 verse 8 says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That was Paul's perspective. No matter what he had in life, Nothing compared to the, to the worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And so that's the goal that we're all striving for, is to grow more and more in the faith, to grow and more in our understanding. Not of just doctrine. We, we do that because that's, doctrine teaches us about Christ. And so we don't buy into the idea that doctrine is not important. All of these things that we teach you over and over and over in Sunday school and from the pulpit and in small groups, these things are part of what uh, is, is needed to grow, to know Jesus Christ who is from the beginning. We're going to look at that in a minute. But as we get older in the faith, as we walk with Christ more and more, He should become sweeter to us. Knowing Him. Knowing who He is should be all that we desire. <laughs> and then finally, the last group that we look at that John speaks to is to those that, who would be in the middle, the young men. He says in verse 13, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you were strong. The Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And so if the goal of the Christian life is fatherhood or spiritual maturity. The means of attaining the goal is to be strong men who overcome the evil one through God's Word. And I think what John is telling us here is in different ways. He says, first he says, um, I am writing to you young men because you are strong. Now he's not talking about physical strength here. That's not going to do anything for your spirit. He's talking about spiritual strength. It's not our strength, though. It is a strength that comes as a result of being a new creation. It's not something that we can well up in ourselves and be, be manly man and just you know, do that. It's, it's, it's that spiritual strength that comes from being a new creation in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the agent of that. Before we were converted, we were in bondage to sin and Satan. He was our master. We had no strength or ability to resist him or ourselves. The lusts of the world were our lust. We we loved them. After conversion, though, we are taking out of the realm, we're taken out of that realm of sin and Satan, where he was our master, and we're placed now in the realm of righteousness and life. We have a new master, and through him, we now have the power and the ability to resist sin, where we did not have before. And so we see that there, that, there, that there is strength there that we have. There is a resource for us to draw on. We have an ability now to overcome sin and the evil one. And where does that source come from? It's ultimately through the Holy Spirit, but what does He use? 
He says, in verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you were strong, the Word of God abides in you. It's the Word of God. Jesus, when He was tempted by the devil in the wilderness three times, answered each time with, It is written. Here's the, the Son of God. When He was tempted by Satan, what did He do? He went to the Word of God. That was His weapon He used. David in Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 119, 9 and 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then the ultimate place where we know in Ephesians where the weapons of the Christian are found. He says in verse 17, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The armor of God, all of it as Paul goes through it, is defensive armor. But if he did not have the sword of the Spirit, what would he be? just a sitting duck that could take a little bit more punishment than if he didn't have it. He would have no offensive weapon. And so he, Paul's readers understood that clearly because a Roman soldier would be laughed at if he ran out on the battlefield with just his armor. He would not last long at all. He had to have a sword, an offensive sword, to take the battle to the enemy, to defeat the enemy. And that's what Paul is saying here. We have all these things to, to keep, to endure the fight... But you've got to fight. You've got to take the Word of God. It is the sword of the Spirit. So what is the result of their strength, the young men? <clears throat> he says, you have overcome the evil one. Again here, the word... Overcome is in the perfect tense in the Greek, which indicates action that took place in the past and has continuing results up to the present and future. You have overcome the evil one. It's a done deal. It's been accomplished. You have overcome. But our adversary is real, is he not? Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He doesn't take a vacation. He doesn't take a break. He doesn't sleep. He is out there prowling, looking for someone to devour, looking for God's people to devour. He's not looking for His people. They're already under His control. He is their master. He has left them to look for God's people to devour. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 when he's talking about uh, the armor of God, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So that's, that's what we're in. This is not a game that you can sit on the sidelines and say, I'll get in for a quarter and then I'm going to bow out, coach. I'm tired. I need a break. That's not the way it is. You're in the battle. You're in the war. The war has been won. That's the great news. 
It's not like the outcome is uncertain. We have overcome. It's done. He's defeated. He was defeated on the cross. But he's still out there doing his guerrilla tactics tactics against God's people. And so you're in that war. You're in those battles daily. You do not have to be a Christian for long before you realize that this is a difficult life. I have experienced, and I am sure many of you have also experienced the fatigue and discouragement that comes when you are struggling with a particular sin. Can I get an amen for that? We've all experienced that. We feel defeated. We're discouraged. Sometimes even depressed because sin seems to be destroying us. We're like, Paul, why am I doing this stuff that I hate to do? All these things I want to do, I'm trying to do, I can't do it. What is wrong with me? Sometimes it gets so bad you begin to even doubt if you even know God. Have you been there? I've been there. You begin to wonder, am I really a child of God? How could a child of God do this stuff and act this way? I've even had people ask me, and I've I've done the same thing, if the fact that a particular sin is getting the better of them means that they're not saved. I mean, I've had actually people ask me that. And they're they're looking for answers. They really are concerned. Because that's one of the things that John is doing here throughout this epistle. He's getting people to do a gut check, a heart check, to see if you really are in the faith, as Paul told people to do. Examine yourselves. And so sometimes we do that. We reflect on our lives and we don't see anything that's worthy. And we begin to wonder, am I really a child of God? Am I really saved? But then I love to remind them that the fact that they hate that sin and that they're frustrated about it, they're hating it, and that they're fighting against it, even though they might not be winning, they're fighting That's not a sign of spiritual death. That's a sign of spiritual life. God didn't say we were going to win every day. He just said the ultimate outcome has been won. You know where we're going. That cannot be thwarted. But there will be valleys in the midst of that journey to the celestial city that we will fall in the sea of despond as Christian did in Pilgrim's Progress or get off track and and fall into his sin or whatever. And we will doubt ourselves. But we have to realize if you find yourself hating yourself, then that's a good sign. Now, you've got to be careful that you don't go too far with that into depression and self-pity. okay? Because as I just showed you earlier, we have the resources to combat that sin. We have the resources to have the victory. But John here is trying to encourage those children of God that's in the fight you're forgiven you've overcome the word of God abides in you it remains in you it's part of you so what I want what do I want you to take away from this what does John want us to take away what does the Holy Spirit have for us here well, this is, this is really very simple. It's Christianity 101. Going back to what I first talked about, we all, all of us who know Christ, 
all are forgiven. When is the last time that you actually thank God for forgiving you? When I had to ask myself that question. It's been a, it probably hasn't been it's been too long. I don't do it enough. That we actually meditate on the fact that if I don't get anything else accomplished today, I can know when I lay my head down on the pillow tonight that I am forgiven. And that can't be taken away. No matter what you're going through in life, the fact that we are forgiven tells us what? Well, it tells us that when this fight is over, that we will be with God in heaven, with Him for all eternity. And as Paul, when he was talking about all the different things in 2 Corinthians that he endured as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I'm not going to go through the list, you know it, he, that brother was, he went through it. He was beat and robbed and left dead. And when he was reflecting on that, he said, he called it this slight momentary affliction. You know, if, if, I don't, if things don't go right for me in a single day, I start whining and complaining, and we all do that, right? Dinner isn't ready. It doesn't taste good. This isn't right. This, that, this ain't right. Why did that person say this? Why is that? Where did my money go? It's all gone. My 401K is down to nothing. What's going on? You know, we've got to have the perspective of Paul. This is a slight momentary affliction. It's not even really worth talking about in the grand scheme of eternity. We've got to have that perspective that we are forgiven in Christ. That's what our foundation is. And if you know that, if you understand that, and if you can meditate on that often, you will find yourself being able to handle whatever happens. And you have to realize that whatever happens to you happens to you because a sovereign God decreed that it happened. Okay, We're not pawns in this celestial war between good and evil, between Satan and God. We are firmly in the hands of God. That's what John is trying to get his people to see. I know I'm saying some tough things. I know some people are teaching you some wrong things. I know some people have deserted you. But you need to remember this one thing, these few things. You are forgiven. Don't ever doubt that. It's good to examine your life. It's good to grow in the faith. And that's he's encouraging the young men to do that. But he's saying, remember the fact that you are forgiven. That that can never be taken away from you. We know that as a doctrine of the preservation and the perseverance of the saints. When we know God as our Father, when He has saved us, when we have put our faith in Him, in the, in the finished work of Christ on the cross, God declares us not guilty. And that can never be taken away. That's shouting ground. That is, that is something to celebrate. We are forgiven. But also John is telling us here, not only are we forgiven, not only has God just said, okay, you're not guilty, you're going to go to heaven, but I'm not going to pay any attention to you, you're driving me crazy. No. We are precious to God. He is our Father. We're precious in His sight. Romans 8, 31, 39. I mean, this is a long, but I, I like to read this often. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how, we, how, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. 
more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you can look in that section of Scripture and say that you are beyond God's love and beyond God's grace, you are not understanding Scripture aright. These verses clearly tell us that it is not because of us that we are precious to God. It is through Christ Jesus. It is Him who died, more than less, Him who was raised. It is based on that that we are secure. But God does love us. He loves each one of us individually. He knows the hairs on our head. And we are precious to His sight. He doesn't promise us a rose garden, whatever that song, whoever sings that song. But He does promise that we will be with Him in heaven forever. And that the Holy Spirit resides in our hearts now. And that's better than a rose garden or any amount of wealth that we could ever attain in this life. But also, finally, I think what John is challenging us with here this morning is that we should be growing in the Lord. The Christian life is all about growing and becoming more and more enamored and understanding and knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. In this way, spiritual life has a lot in harmony with physical life. You know, there's different stages. In physical life, we're born as a baby, and we grow and grow and grow. And then we grow into manhood or womanhood. And when that growth doesn't happen, we, we, we go to the doctor, right? Something's wrong. It's not natural for a child to not progress and grow into a man or a woman. And so in that way, spiritual life is much like physical life. There's a difference in, in the way physical life goes and the way spiritual life. Physical growth usually occurs without much effort on our part. We don't have to do a lot. We just eat, right? And we grow. We don't have to do a lot. But that's not the case with spiritual growth. We have to work at that. That does not happen naturally. Now, God has promised to, in, in uh, Philippians 1.6, He says, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. And so he's, he's made his promises and he does what he's supposed to do to see that we grow. But it takes our effort to do that. There are different stages in the Christian life and each stage there are blessings to be enjoyed. But make no mistake, little children in the faith need to become young men in the faith. And young men in the faith need to become fathers of the faith. And so... John is telling us here about the blessings that come as we're journeying through this life. That we can know that we are forgiven. It's already happened. It's been done. We can know Him who is from the beginning. Jesus Christ is the all in all. He is our Savior. 
and we can know that we are overcomers. That's a good title for Christians. We're the overcomers. We're the conquerors. Not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. He is conquering and overcoming through us. And it is by His Spirit that we are able to have the victory. Now, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, we have the testimony of Scripture. In John 3.16, we all know, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel call. But just two verses later, he says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There's only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ, his Son. And so if you don't know Christ as your Savior this morning, you, know, you can know this, that you are not forgiven. And you will not overcome. And you will have to stand before a holy and righteous God, maybe today, and give an account for your life. And there is nothing that you can claim that will merit you into heaven. And so if that, if that is you this morning, I plead with you with all I have to go to the cross. Turn to Jesus Christ, who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ is our Savior. Call on Him for your forgiveness. May God bless the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for solving the problem that we all have, Father, and that is how do we become right to a holy and righteous God? How can we, who are rebellious sinners, be made right in Your sight? How can we be forgiven? Father, I thank You that You sent Your Son to live the life that we are required to live, to live in righteousness. And I thank You, Father, that He lived that life and then He went to the cross and bore the burden of of our sin upon His body. Lord, I thank You for that I can't even say the words of how much love that requires of you. I don't understand it. But I thank you, Lord, that you love us and that we are precious to you. And we thank you for providing the Savior. We thank you, Father, that we are overcomers, that you have given us all that we need to grow spiritually. And I pray, God, that each one of us will take that very seriously, that the things of this world will pale in comparison to the, to the wonderful truth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Bless us to be a church like that, Father, so we can be used by you in this community to further your kingdom. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.